The production of Conversations That Matter with Stuart McNish is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and listeners and viewers like you. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. Justin Trudeau had promised that the 2015 federal election would be the last time a government would be chosen using the first past the post voting system. That promise promptly evaporated and morphed into support for a proportional representation voting system. Then in the following months, the Prime Minister directed the Minister of Democratic Institutions to drop that idea as well. Fast forward to 2021, the Liberals set a record for the lowest vote share of a party that would go on to form government, winning 32.6% of the popular vote. According to Federal Elections Canada, voter turnout numbers were just less than half of the population of the country. Only 17 million of Canada's 35 million people voted. The Liberals only received 5.6 million votes, yet went on to form a minority government in a coalition with the NDP, which achieved only 2.3% of the popular vote. Despite these numbers, the Liberals and the NDP signed a pact to support one another and govern as though they have a majority mandate. The results suggest that democracy is not being served and needs to be reformed. Well, Dennis Bilon, a uh, York University professor in the Department of Politics, urges caution when making such assertions. He argues voting system reform has been a part of a larger struggle over defining what democracy itself is. I invited Professor Dennis Pilon to join me for a conversation that matters about the way in which we choose our governments and does the system need to be reformed. Dennis, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start by defining what democracy is in Canada, but also in Western nations. Uh, it's not entirely clear exactly what democracy is, so how can we go about suggesting that we're going to reform systems if we don't have a clear definition? These things are, are historical. You know, people uh, look back at different, different periods and they see the way that people govern themselves. Uh, and at various points, there have been a lot of people involved and then not a lot of people involved. You know, democracy usually means a lot of people are involved. Um, you know, typically we tend to equate democracy with elections. Hey, if you've got some elections going, then you're having democracy. But that's not the whole story. You know, lots of authoritarian regimes have elections. So there's got to be something more. And that's where I think the debate is where we're at presently. You know, is our system delivering the goods? I tend to come at it in terms of representation. Are we representing what Canadians say with their votes effectively? Uh, the more that we can do that, I think the closer we come to a democratic ideal. So are we a representational democracy in Canada? And I say that with in mind that in the United States, I think they come closer to that because uh, local or uh, state and uh, different um, elected officials don't necessarily have to vote along party lines, whereas in Canada, we have to. Like uh, MPs have to. You know, you're opening a whole can of worms here, right, in terms of how do we understand what people are voting for. Um, you know, when I look at the facts, it looks to me like people are voting for parties. Um, you know, very few individuals get elected in Canada that aren't connected with parties. Uh, and when we look at the behavior, as you say, of the politicians, they tend to vote party almost all the time. 
And when politicians don't go with their party, you know, we had a famous example in B.C. a few years ago where uh, a fellow was elected to Vancouver Kingsway federally for the liberals, then decided to jump ship to the conservatives. People were furious, absolutely furious with him because they didn't vote for him to be a conservative. They voted for him to be a liberal. So parties are used as a proxy. People use parties as a way of navigating the complexity of the political system. And we know that because where there aren't parties, uh, voter turnout is much lower. Voter knowledge is much no lower. People struggle to participate in arenas where there aren't parties, like, say, the municipal level. Is that because it becomes too complex to understand what the uh, political agenda or philosophy is of an individual, and we just become overwhelmed? Absolutely. And it's not even, you know, it's not even that it's too complex because it, it's incredible how much average folks can actually do politically. You know, remember the Citizens Assembly situation in British Columbia a few years ago with the voting system took a bunch of average folks and wow, they, they got schooled up. They learned all about voting systems. I mean, they made some really interesting and very sophisticated choices. The problem for most people is they've got lives. Uh, they don't have the time uh, or, or, you know, the foreknowledge to be able to navigate all of the ins and outs, all the jargon. Uh, so that that is the challenge is the time and, and in some cases money to be able to participate. So you're right. You know, the individuals, what does this person stand for? Where, where do they fall in terms of their gut level reactions to politics? You know, are they are they for more government spending? Are they against it? You know, do they think the government should, uh, you know, run hospitals or do they think the private sector? These are the things that, you know, people have opinions about. And that's what they're trying to figure out when they look at the politicians. And our party distinctions do actually match up with that. So you mentioned the Citizens Assembly, and it was very interesting because then Premier uh, Gordon Campbell put it to a vote to the people of British Columbia, not once, but twice, failing uh, by a healthy margin the first time but on the second overall the total number of votes supporting a change were there but they didn't meet every one of the criteria that he put in place and interestingly enough he decided not to go forward with it was he right in saying nope that's the bar that i set um and despite the fact that the popular vote would suggest that uh the majority of british columbians want some sort of electoral reform it didn't meet that that standard. What we see with politicians is that they say yes with one hand and no with the other. Uh, and so with Gordon Campbell, you know, he had come out of the municipal scene in, in, in Vancouver. He was part of the NPA. And there had been, as you probably know, a titanic battle over the at-large voting system in Vancouver. Uh, and the right-wing forces for whom it had been quite beneficial were quite keen to keep it. Uh, despite, on the other hand, talking about local representation, how important that was, but only too happy to have an at-large system when it served their political purposes. And what, what Gordon Campbell learned as mayor was that you could say yes and no at the same time. So the previous NPA councillors had said, no, 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 no change to the at-large system. But of course, slowly the NPA was losing support. And so Campbell came on the scene. He said, oh yeah, let's, let's sure, we can have a vote, but there has to be a super majority for uh, any change to happen even though, of course, the system was not introduced with a supermajority back in 1935. So what was interesting was when he became premier, he brought the same experience that he had, had at the municipal level to the provincial level, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's look at this. What a great idea. Oh, but wait a minute. We're going to put in some things that pretty much guarantee it won't pass. So even though in 2005, when 58% of voters said, yes, they wanted to try out this new proportional voting system, 
of course, Campbell had set the bar so high that, uh, that, it, w- that it didn't pass. I got to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of Conversations That Matter with Stuart McNish is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and listeners and viewers like you. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. So do proportional representation voting systems work? Uh, We don't have it in Canada and the United States, but there are countries that do, and their system looks even messier. Well, I mean, most actually, most Western industrialized countries use proportional voting systems. You know, if we look at countries that are comparable to Canada, which are kind of the Western European ones, uh, you know, countries that have that have had similar economic and political development to Canada. Um, yeah, they've, they've all used PR systems, many of them for over 100 years. Um, they don't really have any problems with them. Systems work. Um, you know, when we look at questions of things like stability, right, political scientists are big on that. How do we measure stability between different countries? Because we want our political systems to work, obviously. It's not enough to have representation. The representation has to be able to get together and do something. So how would we measure stability? One way of measuring it would be to look at the number of elections that have to happen, right? If, if a country's unstable, then we would expect that they would be going back to the polls all the time, asking people to vote because the government has fallen. What we discover is that when we look at the number of elections in the Western European countries using PR, they actually have had fewer elections than we've had here in Canada. So it doesn't appear that these systems are too unstable. Um, now, they do have a system where they got to work out who's going to govern, they got to cook up some kind of coalition, the politicians have got to come together and figure out how to work together. But in terms of being able to produce a government that is stable, that can pass legislation, uh, that can get stuff done that people want, yeah, there's no evidence that those countries have any more difficulty than we do. What do you think the odds are that there will be a movement towards that here in Canada? And I ask that kind of coming at it from the perspective of, well, the system that we've had in place now, which is, you know, uh, Westminster uh, parliamentary democracy uh, model on the British model, has been in effect here for more than, uh, well, 145 years. Uh, it's entrenched. So how do you then start to pull that apart and put something else together? Well, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to change those institutions. They were often entrenched in the pre-democratic era. You know, if we go back, uh, you know, to the pre-Confederation colonies, they used a mixture of first-past-the-post and at-large voting uh, for, you know, their elections in the old upper and lower Canada, the United Province of Canada. And then in the early years of Confederation, which was also not a very democratic time, I mean, you know, you had responsible government, but you didn't have a full, even a full male electorate, right? It was, a, it was a very narrow electorate defined on property. We don't even get to full male suffrage until <clears throat> about 1900. So the institutions were entrenched long before we even met the minimum conditions of democracy. And that, of course, makes it very difficult to change them. Um, so you ask, what would be the conditions, you know, that might push this onto the agenda? The short answer is, increased party competition. Uh, You know, a lot of people say that proportional systems lead to, you know, tons of parties. In fact, the tons of parties happens before the adoption of proportional representation. So where we see countries move to adopt PR, it's often when their party systems are no longer dominated by one or two parties. And what we've seen in this country is that we've seen more discussion of voting system reform in the last 15 years 
than in the previous hundred years. And that has everything to do with that point you made earlier about the declining support, not just for the liberals, but for the conservatives too. Our two main governing parties, the parties that have formed every national government in this country, have never been so weak uh, as they have been in these most recent years. And that is probably the thing that might push this issue forward. Okay, you say might because you're being cautious. Do you think we're going to get there? And from your perspective, do you think we should? Oh, absolutely we should. I, I don't find the arguments against, or you know, there really aren't any democratic arguments in favor of our current system. Uh, there are lots of arguments for it, but they're just not democratic ones. You know, there there are things that appeal to the fact that the system is not very representative. You know, basically only allows a few parties to get you know past the gate, um, or uh, that it creates majority governments, even though Canadians almost never vote for majority governments. You know, if you look at the last time that we had a majority of Canadians support one party, that's 1984, just barely the Conservatives. Before that, it was 1950. Uh, 58, again, the Conservatives, before that, 1940. It's very rare that Canadians give you know, a majority of their support to one party. And yet our voting system regularly you know, creates one out of the way the system, the system works. I don't find these democratic arguments. I think that any proportional system would do a better job in terms of representing what Canadians say and then ending up with a government that has to draw the broadest group of Canadians under their umbrella. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of Conversations That Matter with Stuart McNish is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and listeners and viewers like you. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. Well, you said something, a little magic uh, phrase there, any form of pro uh, proportional representation, because it comes in many shapes and sizes. Yeah. We saw from the Citizens' Assembly in British Columbia that getting to, to something takes a considerable amount of work. And, and you know, uh, Jack Blaney from SFU, I think, guided that process quite well. Um, how do we, if we choose to go down this path, how do we create a similar process that can work nationally. Yeah. You know, let's just be clear. Most people don't know anything about any of our institutions. And, you know, that's not their fault. Why should they? They hardly ever use these things. You know, once every four years, we ask them to come and use the system. You know, it's not, I, I purge that information regularly because, you know, you're busy doing other stuff. Um, so as a rule, most people don't have any opinions about these things. Um, the vested interests do, right? The parties have a lot of opinions and, and various uh, different citizen groups. Having said all that, I think the right way to make the decision is, again, through the Citizens' Assembly process. I think the BC process shows that if you give average folks the tools, you know, a chance to get informed and let them talk amongst themselves and look at some evidence, they really do come up with good stuff that serves the public interest. The last thing we want to do is let those who benefit from the current system be in the driver's seat, right? That's like letting the fox design the hen house. You know, you, you don't do that, right? You, you, I think the idea of a citizen's assembly would strike the right balance between having political input from experts and political parties, but at the end of the day, you know, letting, letting average folks, you know, get their, get their hands dirty looking at the question and, and, and coming up with the best system. Okay. So, let's say we go through that process it's a it's a many year process and it requires some kind of cathedral thinking because you're 
trying to build out something that will play itself out over generations. Does, let's say we get to that point, uh, does the implementation of that require a referendum? Or would the government of the day have the right to implement it? I don't think that a referendum is, is, is necessary. Um, I mean, there are those who disagree. I mean, you know, there were people who thought that having referendums on whether women could vote was an okay thing. I, personally, I don't think so. Uh, we've seen referendums used for democratic as well as anti-democratic purposes. I mean, the U.S. was rife with examples of referendums that were used to strip black Americans of their voting rights. So to me, the, the, the question is, are we getting the results we need with the institutions that we're using? And the way that we approach that is we say, well, what are people trying to do by voting? What do we know that people are trying to accomplish? And when we look at the evidence over a very long period of time, we know that you know people are voting for parties for the reasons that we already talked about. The parties represent the basic divisions. We need a system that will reflect any changes that the voters have in terms of the parties that they want to support. Um, so what, what system, what institution will best reflect what people are saying with their votes? That's, that's a factual question, not, not an opinion question. Uh, and so I don't think that once we've worked out through a citizens assembly, which is the system that we think will best match the needs and the culture of what we are as Canada, our needs, our unique needs. Um, no, we don't we don't put that to a vote because you're basically asking people, you know, well, do you do you approve or not approve of a system that's going to do a better job? Would you prefer a system that does a less good job? I, I, that's not the kind of choice that I think we should be making in terms of making our democracy work. So we're talking, of course, about uh, elected representatives, House of Commons. Uh, but we also have this thing in Canada called the Senate, and people are appointed. Do we need to reform the way in which senators uh, obtain their position? We need a long-term perspective. Where do these institutions come from? What, 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 what was their point? You know, a lot of people think that our Senate was designed to represent you know, regions. And, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely idea, but it's it just isn't the case, right? I mean, the, the upper house in Canada was part of the deal that the pre-democratic elites in the different colonies made to agree to surrender some of their power, right? The local elites, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were going to get a piece of whatever patronage was going on. If, the, if a railway was going to be built, you know, they wanted to make sure it was going to help them build a mansion. This is not about public interests or public good. You know, this is a, a bunch of elites who are running this game for their own for their own benefit. Upper houses uh, throughout the Western world were an anti-democratic check on this experiment with democracy. You know, as all as all of the different Western countries were being forced to open up their political systems to the great unwashed, they were terrified what might happen. And so upper houses were a way of protecting themselves. You know, John McDonald was very clear on this, right? That the upper house was meant to protect minorities. And by minorities, he meant the rich. I mean, he just came out and said it. You know, but 19th century uh, elites were quite refreshingly honest about what they were doing. Um, so we have the Senate. It's alleged that it's supposed to represent these regions. But then look at the history of the 20th century. It was just a rubber stamp. It was a rubber stamp for whichever party controlled appointments to the Senate. Of course, for the most part, that was the liberals. Occasionally, it was the conservatives. So it's never functioned in the way that it was alleged to have been created. Now we have to ask ourselves, do we need a Senate? 
And I think that's a fair question. My own view is we don't, right? We've got provincial governments. They pretty much take care of whatever regional interests are there. Um, to create a national government, you pretty much have to speak to the different regions if you want to put together a coalition. So what is the Senate doing? So, you know, when we come back to this question of the Senate, um, that's a different conversation that involves uh, different issues. The House of Commons is historically the body where the democratic legitimacy is. And that's, I think, where most of our attention needs to go in the short term. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of Conversations That Matter with Stuart McNish is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and listeners and viewers like you. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. Okay, when we take a look at uh, lower and lower voter turnout, are people saying, uh, I'm, I'm concerned that there is an institutional crisis, or are they going, seems to be working okay? And if so, if that's the general attitude, does that then not make the concept of democratic reform um, harder to achieve? You know, voter turnout is one of the most studied questions in political science. Uh, it's also one with the fewest answers. Uh, it's not as simple as, as people might think. The, the typical characterization is, you know, people don't care, people aren't interested, or, or maybe people are happy with the system, so they're just letting it do whatever it does. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to really support those claims. Um, it has a lot to do with mobilization. In, in the periods when we had 80% voter turnout, the strategy of parties was to go door to door. Uh, and basically pull the vote. And the leaders on that were parties from the left, right, who, who had um, a lot of volunteers, but not a lot of money. And so they couldn't rely on advertising to pull people. They had to actually, you know, go and connect with them. And, and what that meant was a lot of people who don't have a very high sense of entitlement or, or maybe education or money, uh, they were encouraged to participate by this direct voter contact. Uh, you know, we know that direct voter contact is the greater, greatest predictor of whether someone will participate in an election if they're not already committed to doing so. So that's really the biggest factor that's changed is that as parties have moved online, uh, as they've, you know, as they're no longer doing as much, you know, door to door connection, that has led to a, 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 a pronounced decline, particularly amongst poor and working class voters. So I, I wouldn't say that uh, it, it's a mark of, of satisfaction. Um, I think that some people, they're, they're, they're frustrated and they, they don't see that participating has any impact. Um, and again, our voting system makes that impact hard to register because it, it, it misrepresents what people say uh, with their votes uh, so often. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think there are things we could do about it, but they all involve uh, getting people face to face, uh, connecting with people uh, to help them come into the political system. Well, it is a fascinating discussion, one that we've only scratched the surface of. I thank you for your time today to at least nudge us up the, the path a little bit. <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. It's thanks to listeners and viewers and the ongoing support of Audlin Brown and BD Developments that the production of this program is possible.